It's really uh, amazing to me how, how things work out, how God desires to bring about change, how he has us kind of right where he wants us to be, journeying through the passage he wants us to journey through uh, in, light of, in light of events. And so this morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and, and this is where we have been going to land on and kind of how these things are going to work out, so we didn't pick a passage just to address what's going on today, but it fits so perfectly with what we've witnessed in the news, what some of us have witnessed in our own lives this past week. Let me read the passage, and then we will walk through together. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Peter writes and says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then quoting Psalm 34, 12 through 6, he writes, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And what a timely word for us in the midst of heartache, in the midst of bloodshed, in the midst of suffering and pain. Recognize that as Peter comes into this, he's just addressed a a kind of a wide swath of people there in these five churches. And so he began back in chapter 2 in really centering on the Christian submission to government back in 2.13, the Christian submission to government. And so he went through that and described it, and, and I'm sure there were those in Peter's day who read that, and they went grumble, 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 I can't believe he'd say that, but it, it seems to be the word of the Lord, and so they took it, they applied it, they lived their lives in accordance with it. Then he comes to slaves and described a situation where some of the slaves had wonderful masters, and some of them had awful, jerkish, terrible masters who were cruel and unusual to them. And so he gave a word of instruction to them. And then turning to husbands and wives, he also offered a word of instruction to them. But here we find ourselves where he comes in and he addresses all of us all at one time once again. And so he starts it and he says, finally, all of you. Now let me uh, work against what's likely going to happen in your mind in the next few seconds. And this is uh, particularly a Western phenomenon that I would like to work against, okay? Okay. When we go through verses together, when we go through passages together, many verses, we have this immediate tendency towards personalization, particular uh, interpretation, particular application for you. And so Jimmy's sitting over here, and Jimmy hears this, and his thoughts and his patterns are, what does this mean to me? How might I apply this? Let me just tell you, stop it. Simply, stop it. This is a good thing to reflect on later, but when we get into this passage in particular, recognize that Peter's not addressing us primarily, primarily on the level of being individual, but, but first and foremost on the level of being community. And if many of us would think more what it means to be on the level of community and, and abandon in some sense this ideology of self and personal and me and what happens to my possessions and what happens to my point of view and, and, and the way that I would like to hear it, we would see a lot more harmony 
And so understand this. When we get into this, call it out. When we get into the middle of this and you begin to think, I wonder what this means to me, Frank, reach over and pinch her, okay? Okay, would you do that? And if you see somebody sitting beside you that begins to have that look on their face that looks like me, myself, and I, pinch the fire out of them and say, us, our, and we. Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to get slapped. That's what's going to happen. Don't pinch the person beside you. But look what he says here. He says, finally, all of you. And the first thing he hits us with, and the last thing in this list of five, both deal in the realm of mind. Verse 8 is all about the interior life of the Christian, and the verse 9 and following is the, so what do you do about it in the midst of community? What do you do about it outside of the walls of the church? And so the first thing he says is that we need to have unity of mind. We need to have unity of mind. And we think about this, and, and, and we are people so prone and given to uh, expanding upon our, our own devices and describing those things that we like most and, and, and what we like best. That we kind of recoil at this idea of, what do you mean, unity of mind? Are you saying you want to brainwash us and have us all agree on one thing? In some sense, I would say yes, absolutely. What we see in this description that Peter writes to them is he says, quit seeking to manifest, display your individuality to the point that on occasion your individuality is working against the community that God desires to foster. So we recognize in this there are times and occasions where our expression of individuality, oh, I like to sing this way, oh, I like to sing that way, oh, I like to show up at church at 9.45 and not 9.30, oh, I don't do this, I don't do that. And so we're a people given to advancing those things that we most delight in. And when we do that, we don't care about anything that goes on in the lives of those around us. And so we seek to build up community, and we do that even in the way that we display this unity of mind. Now, this word Peter uses here is actually, if you're going to take a very wooden translation of it, it means to be same-minded. Same-minded. Now, this is somewhat laughable. When, when There must be some truth to it, and I didn't grow up Southern Baptist, I didn't grow up in the U.S., but I've heard this expression enough that I've become, I've become believing in it. Right? I've begun to believe in it. And the statement is that when you find two Baptists, you have at least three opinions. And I've spent some time with two Baptists, and I can tell you that three opinions is a very low number. And so it would seem to depend on on how much coffee they had that morning and what subject they're describing and where they are in the midst of describing that subject. And it would seem to be in in that moment, in that expression, that they are being disingenuous, that they're being false, and that they're living a life that is contrary to what the Word would have us do. We're going to have disagreements. We're going to have differences of opinion. I love to debate. I love to debate. I love to engage in in intellectual debate and, and discuss things. But in the main, can I tell you this? In the main, we need to be a people more concerned with building up community than advancing our own individual slant of it. We have some wonderful people here that have incredible passions to do uh, different ministries, prison ministry, homeless ministry, ministry to those who are addicted to any different thing. But what we find is destructive is that when children's ministry gets pitted against them or music ministry gets pitted against them or any type of thing that you feel like God is impressing upon your heart and you say, this is foremost, this is most important, and this has to be king. You see, when we do that, we display more of our culture than we do of our gospel. 
we display more of what it is to seek to advance my kingdom than what it is to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And when we are a people who have a unity of mind, then we are a people who advance his gospel to his glory for his renown and not for our own. Peter writes and says you need to have unity of mind. He writes next and he says that you need to be sympathetic or you need to have sympathy. Now this is one of those things that I really struggle with. I'm not the most sympathetic person I've ever met. I'm not the most sympathetic person I've ever met. And and so, I, I mean, I think it's funny when some of you stub your toes and I've seen some of you fall and I find myself inwardly laughing and outwardly saying, oh, are you okay? And inwardly laughing some more. But this isn't just what he's talking about. He's not talking about seeing somebody hurt or seeing somebody go through difficulty and coming along beside them. What he describes in the context of Christian community is being so wed, so married, so close to those around you that when they rejoice, you rejoice. When they're sorrowful, you can help. You can't help but to do anything else other than to cry. And that is what Christian community ultimately looks like. It's not this group of individuals who have this loose association all centered around where we go to church on Sunday mornings or which Bible study you're in or what type of car you drive or where you work or what city you live in. But it's actually describing a group of people who are so enmeshed with one another in life that when one is hurt, everybody cries out in pain. And when one rejoices, everyone claps along. And so what we see in this, that Peter is calling us back to this understanding that we all are one body, and we are that together, and we are never that apart. Amen? He says you need to be sympathetic. You need to have sympathy. One of the ways that sympathy is, is best worked out within the Christian life is within this idea of what he comes to next, brotherly love. Now, Peter spoke to us about brotherly love back in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and verse 22, he spoke of us, he spoke of the Christian, the beloved, and he said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, look at what he says here, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Christian, you are designed, created, and made to display brotherly love. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 4 and verse 19, said these words to them. He said, you have no need for somebody to come along and to teach you how to love one another. God has already taught you this. And so listen to me in this. When we're not displaying brotherly love, when we're not displaying brotherly love in the midst of Christian community, you are working against the gospel. And you say, but have you, have you seen the people I'm in class with? Have you seen the people I sit on a pew with? I have. I've seen you right beside them, jerk. And so why are, you, why are you comparing all these people to yourself? Work in spite of your differences. Work to come along beside them. Work in spite of all the things that would separate you because you recognize the one thing that unites you has overcome sin and death to make you all a part of one family. And can I tell you this, that this family is so much larger than just one church. Recognize that sometimes we have people come forward and maybe some of you have joined this church because of something that went wrong in another church. Somebody offended you. Somebody said something hurtful against you. Your departure from one body to another body has not removed from you your obligation to live at peace with all men. So we recognize that some of us, some of us need to go back to the church we were at before and go to our brothers and sisters there and say, I am so sorry you sinned against me. I took it personally. 
You probably don't even know that I need to forgive you, but in my heart, I do. I want us, in some sense, to be restored and reconciled to one another. Now, you may not choose to return to that church, but your relationship within the Christian community is so much greater than Ridgecrest. It's so much greater than Wesley. It's so much greater than Highland Terrace. It's so much greater than Park Street. It's so much greater than any church in this community you might name, Westminster. So you recognize that all these fractures begin to make their way into our various universal body. And we read clearly here in Scripture, in 1 Thessalonians 4.19 and elsewhere, that brotherly love should be displayed by us. It should be manifest in us. That when people speak about us as Christians, they would say, man, they are some of the most loving, gracious, kind people. Why? Because of our identification with Jesus Christ. Now next he says that we need to be tender-hearted. Probably a better translation of this would be that we need to be good-hearted. We need to be good-hearted. We need to be warm and inviting to those we come into contact with. We need to be warm and inviting and quick to forgive those who uh, speak evil against us. Those who aren't just the easiest people to get along with. And I've got news for you. If you sit here today and you think I'm the easiest person to get along with, friend, you are self-deluded. You're crazy. Like, I've talked to your wife, I've talked to your kids, I've talked to your neighbor. You are not the easiest person to get along with. Why? Because you're sinful. Because you're sinful. And what we read here in Scripture is not a, you know what, they're just not a morning person, uh, or an afternoon person, or an evening person. In fact, they're just pretty crabby. They're maybe, you know, like a leap year person. We find them being really good on the leap year. Leap year, okay, that's what you're working with. Well, we certainly have room to progress and get better. But in this movement, in this display, what we recognize is that each and every one of these characteristics, characteristics isn't something that we intrinsically are good at. And we should say, whew, oh man, I really felt like I was failing. You're on like the third or fourth term, and I'm like, F. If I get the last two, I still can't recover these things. What we recognize is that each and every one of these terms requires complete and utter dependence upon God. These things are spirit-wrought and spirit-led. And so when you find yourself in the midst of community really struggling to get along with those around you, I'm struggling to get on the same page. I'm struggling to be in the same mind. I'm struggling to be humble. I'm struggling to be patient. I'm struggling with all these things. What it requires of us is not a divorce from community, but a re-engagement of the spirit. Sometimes we try and resolve the conflicts of life by divorcing ourselves from community. I can't get along with them, so I'm going to leave. And I've been guilty of this. I can't get along with them, so I'm going to leave. I can't get along with them, so I'm going to cut this stuff out of my life. It's for my good. But what we recognize is that many times in these situations, we don't need to cut ourselves off and divorce ourselves from community, but we need a re-engagement of the Holy Spirit in His leading, in His guidance, in the midst of those relationships. Look at the last thing he comes to here. He says that we need to have a humble mind. We need to have a humble mind. So beginning with this unity of mind and ending with humility of mind, he comes into this. And this amazing thing we find in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 has the most bold and amazing display of humility by the most important character in history. Verse 5 of chapter 2, 
says, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Within each and every one of these characteristics, we find ourselves not being trailblazers, but followers of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves not seeking to say, how can this best look in my life, or how can this best be manifest in our community, but saying, how did Jesus demonstrate, lead out well in this, and how might we follow him? And occasionally you're going to find yourself not following well. You're being left. You're, you're feeling alienated. You're feeling like, I just, I just don't know how to keep up, how to do this. That's what community's for. Community is so that other people can come around you and lift you up and say, we're going this way. This is how you follow. This is where Jesus is. This is how we're going to follow him well together. This, these are the things I've cut out of my life, and this is why this is so difficult. But the struggle is worthwhile. The struggle is sanctifying, it is making us holy, and the struggle is glorifying, it is honoring to God in the midst of our struggle. And so this is where we are. This should be our interior life. This should be what's going on inside each one of us. This should be what our heart looks like. This should be what our minds look like. This should be in every church, no matter where you walk across this world, every church you walk into, they should have these things in their lives and struggling to be more and more pronounced in their lives. Peter recognizes that we struggle with that. That that's a great difficulty for us. So he gives us more of a concrete application when it moves to outside the church and what this looks like. Look at what he says. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Our natural human tendency is that when somebody offends us or hurts us, we respond in kind. I've got kids. This isn't something we learn as adults. You graduate from college, and everybody's like, here, here's your eye for an eye card. You're like, what's this? It's a reminder that when someone hurts you, you hurt them back. Congratulations, you also owe us $200,000. You're like, what? Now I want to hurt somebody else. It's this thing that we get from the very moment we begin to demonstrate personality, that when one of my kids hurts the other, what does he want to do? He wants to turn and hurt his brother. Why did you hurt your brother? He hit me first. And so some of us, we, we get older, we intellectualize it, or we go to this misappropriation of the Old Testament understanding of eye for an eye. And so we say, look, when somebody says something against my wife, oh man, I'm going to get back at them. When somebody hurts me, I'm going to get back at them. When they bring evil towards me, I'm going to get back at them. And you would say, in this understanding, that you are valid, that you are justified. Even in your gross perversion of the Old Testament, let me tell you that you are wrong. This idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a li- life for a life, was meant to be limiting in nature, not prescriptive in nature. It was meant to be limiting in nature. So if someone did something against you, the judges could assign retribution up into a point. They're not making it prescriptive. You don't have to exact vengeance. But what we see in Jesus in Matthew 5, 38, after Jesus has been into this amazing teachment, 
amazing teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He moves in, in Matthew 5, 38, and he says, You've heard it said, but I tell you, and he upends the whole situation. And Peter, moving in line with this, says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. There is no amount of bringing evil to bear on evil or reviling to bear on reviling that will solve anything. You can spend your whole life pouring out hate back towards other people. You can spend your whole life cutting off relationships and using the aggression of passive aggressiveness to wound people. But what you're doing in this is moving in direct opposition in in an antithetical way to what the gospel declares is true, righteous, and holy behavior. But this is something so anti-cultural. What do we hear so often out of the mouths of, of protesters or out of the mouths of those wounded? They want retribution. They want retaliation. And the Christian stands in the middle trying to hold the world together and direct them to Jesus Christ who, see this, when suffered the complete and utter ridicule of his creation... Jesus hanging on the cross who suffered evil, who suffered reviling, who was beaten at the hand of his creation. What was his response? Luke 23, 34 tells us that Christ's response in the middle of this, the most prime evil, the most audacious, terrible display of reviling ever, that in the midst of this, Jesus Christ hanging on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. No amount of evil will ever undo evil. No amount of reviling or injustice will ever bring about justice and righteousness. That's not what you were made for. That's not what you were saved for. That's not what God has set you apart unto. You're going to encounter difficulty. It's a surety. Maybe the difficulty you experience won't be like that which we've witnessed on the television over the last week. But you're going to encounter difficulty. People are going to say things about you. People are going to bring evil to bear on you. And in our ordinary, normal, everyday lives, this verse, this application is so practical and so purposed in its direction for our hearts. Our hearts are wicked and sinful. Who can know the heart? As I was sitting in my office and, 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 and saw this coming up, and, and it really wasn't until Thursday, begin to kind of understand my own frustration and difficulty with this passage. I mean, it's one of these things where I said, maybe we need a special Sunday. Maybe we need to have a prayer service because on Thursday, ain't nobody got time to prepare something else. And so maybe we need to have something else in light of this. Or maybe we just go back to something you've not heard me teach before. Because my heart wasn't ready to teach this. I was out recently. Out recently, I'm going to the restaurant and I'm walking out of the restaurant and I see some folks there and they greet me warmly. And inwardly, I recoil. Inwardly, I'm, I'm, I'm angry. Inwardly, I'm, 
I'm just so frustrated. And I was like, you said this about me, or, or you told these people that about me, or are you kidding me? You're going to sit there with that stupid grin on your face and, and greet me like nothing ever happened? Where's the waiter? I'm going to get him to spit in your food. Just so you know, they won't actually do that if you ask. <laughs> I don't know. Didn't know that. I was escorted out. Now I know. Not an appropriate thing to ask your waiter. Or, or their waiter, for that matter. Doesn't matter how much you offer to pay them, it will not happen. And so in that moment, I'm kind of wrestling with this. And I, and I feel disturbed because of my inward response to these folks. I, did, I didn't know I felt this way about them. I knew what they'd done, but I, I didn't know I still harbored that resentment. I didn't know I still felt that way until they moved in direct opposition to me. If they didn't say anything hateful to me, that sense, it would have made more sense for me to be angry. They greeted me warmly. The corrective, the corrective we see in Scripture isn't this process of writing them a letter and listing out all the grievances and then us coming to terms. I would do that, friend. I'd be happy to list all the ways that I failed them and they failed me and we could come to some parity, we could come to some middle ground where he said, look, we both have failures, let's just work this thing out. The direction in Scripture, look at what he calls us to. He says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So I'm going through this on Wednesday this week. I'm just not ready to bless. I'm going through this, this Thursday. I'm in the sanctuary and I'm running through the sermon and I get to this point, and I just, God will not let me finish going through the sermon. Because in my heart was this conviction that I recognized my refusal to move to speak a word of blessing over these people. So God would not let me move past this until I confessed my sin before him. This passive-aggressive response that I had towards these people and then actively moved to ask him to bring blessing upon their lives. This is what God's calling us to do as a people. For some of you, what this looks like is, is that you have deemed those around you unworthy of receiving the gospel, and so you've never extended it to them. They're too far gone, they're too awful, they're too terrible. And so you've never extended the gospel. And so in the very real sense, in a primary sense, we recognize that to bless someone is to extend the gospel to them. Why? Because the greatest blessing anyone could ever receive is not a kind platitude from you extended to them, but is the holy word of God come on their lives to produce life in them, to move them, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2, from death to life. And so for many of us, the way, of, we, the way we go about blessing those who have been evil to us or have, who have reviled us is by extending the gospel to them. For many of us, it's this recognition of the waywardness of our heart, of our anger, of our animosity, of our disappointment to those around us and calling out to God, God, would you change my heart? Would you change my disposition before these people and would you bless them would you bring blessings upon them 
Can I tell you, for me, it took this movement of God in my heart. It wasn't this thing where the moment God first brought it to my attention, I said, you know, praise God, you're just so amazing. I pray you bring blessings upon them. My voice changed. This is my blessing voice. Deal with it. And so, God, I pray you just bring blessings upon them. Make them, make them just have a great day and drive a Lamborghini. God, pray, would you do that? My first voice was grumble, grumble, complain. God, help them not to stub their toes when they fall and break their neck. There's no need to add insult to injury. Come on now. Toes are important. So God had to move first in my heart before he could allow me to be an agent for praying for the blessings of those around me. We see that's what he's called us to be in the midst of this. Christian, more frequently in the coming days are you going to have opportunities to direct those around you to speak a word of blessing instead of a word of curse. To speak a word of encouragement instead of a word of condemnation. To speak a word of peace instead of a return to violence. Christian, the place and opportunity God has called you to live in, in this world, in this day, and this time, is to be a peacemaker. Not one who would stir up discord and violence, but one who would sow the seeds of peace, recognizing all things grow from the gospel. The seed that you're primarily called to implant is the seed of the gospel. Look at this. He says, this is what we were called for. This is, this is the very reason that we're made. For to this you were called. You're called to be a blessing, much in line with Genesis 12, where he sends out Abram. He said, I will bless you so that you may be a blessing to the nations. Christian today, the blessing of God rests on your life for the express purpose and direction that you might be a blessing to all those you encounter. And many, many of those you encounter will be dead set against you. But still, In the midst of their opposition, in the midst of their venom, they are still those created in God's image, in his likeness. They are still those for whom the blood of Christ was intended. And they are still those worthy of the blessing of God from your lips to the ears of God. Peter writes, he says, that you may obtain a blessing. You need to understand something in this. It is not a quid pro quo. We don't commit the blessing so that God will bring one back upon us in our lives. Throughout the course and the direction of 1 Peter, Peter's understanding, and we really see this in verse one, chapter 1, verse 4, and verse 6, that our eternal blessing, that thing for which we are waiting, is kept in heaven for us. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. It is not here and now. We're not living in God's kingdom here and now but we are awaiting the day when he will come and we will wipe away every tear, when he will bring death to an end, when he will right all the wrongs. And so the blessing that the Christian awaits to receive is that which Christ brings at his return or their death. Amen? Now what Peter does in the next little section here in 10 through 12 is he uses the background of Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, to support those things that he's argued in 8 and 9. So 8, he said, this is what the inward uh, look of your mind and your heart is like. 9, this is what it's like for you in community. And then 10 through 12, he supports it. And so speaking to the Christian again, he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is just a really clear application point for us. Don't lie. Don't lie. 
If you want to be faithful to God, engage in being one who engages primarily in the truth, in the truth as recognized as that which comes from the gospel. Keep your tongue from evil. Man, we hear plenty of evil on the news. You hear plenty of evil uh, from your coworkers. Some of you and your families hear plenty of evil. You can be an opportunity to communicate good instead of evil. And that's what Peter would have us follow here with this instruction. He said, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. If Jeremiah 29, 7 communicates anything to us, it's that we are to seek for the welfare of the city. And we are moving into a time when it is easier and easier to recognize Christians from non-Christians. The application of just kind of this tangential Christianity or Christianity by side effect in our culture is going away. It's easier and easier to recognize the people who are salt and light and those who are not. Because it's easier, it's going to get more difficult for us to remain hidden. Some of us, over the course of our Christian lives, have become experts at evasion. We are looking for conceal and cover everywhere we go. You show up at a cultural engagement, you show up at a party, you show up at a friend's house or a parade, you're looking for our opportunities not to engage in the gospel. It's going to get more difficult for you. It's going to get more difficult for you. And for many of us, we'll have to make this choice and this understanding of are we a people surrendered to Jesus or are we a people surrendered to not making waves in our culture? The idea is the understanding the words of Scripture espoused by you, lived out by you, are going to be increasingly viewed as violence towards those around you. For many of you, the reason this is going to come about is because you've spent 30, 40, 50 years never uttering the gospel, never living it out. You are this invisible Christian who just wants to go along and get along. Look, you stay in your corner, I'll stay in my corner. I'll only talk about God with people that agree, people that believe. Let me just tell you this. I'm not trying to be inflammatory. If, if people had only ever treated you the same way, you would have never come to know Jesus. If we only ever engage with people that believe the same things we do that are Christians, then Christianity is, is a one-generational phenomenon. Christianity only finds itself moving forward and growing and expanding when we move by the power of the Holy Spirit and engage with those who disagree with us. Each and every one of us have the same backstory. We were dead. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were all dead in our sins and our trespasses, and we recognize that none of us were more dead than anybody else. You can only be one kind of dead. Dead. Right? How dead is he, doctor? He's pretty dead. Like dead, dead? No, no, like dead, 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 dead. Oh, so there's no hope for him. Yeah, like I said, he's dead, 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 dead. Oh, I see what happened there. We were all dead, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God came into our hearts, and he caused our hearts to beat for him and for our hearts to be made alive. And so what we see in this, in our pursuit of peace, in our pursuit of the expansion of the gospel, we read verse 12. This is the context. This is the vantage point from which God sees it. It says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. When we encounter difficulty in the midst of our pursuit, recognize this, God sees it and he hears it. Cry out to him. 
Don't cry out to those around you. Don't take to Facebook and, and write a really well-worded and convincing argument on there, hoping that maybe you'll impact those around you. Go to God. He sees it. He hears you. And look at the sadness here in this last, last part of verse 12. It says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, humanity... For some of you, your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, your children, your neighbor, they're headed to hell. Outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, finding supernatural intervention in their hearts, they are destined for, bound for, headed towards hell. Reading scripture, this used to be our lot. If you're a Christian, this too was your backstory. This too was your direction, your path. And what we read in Scripture is that we liked it. There were internal, supernatural, and ex- internal, external, and supernatural forces at work in our hearts, and we liked living in sin. Even reading here in 1 Peter, Peter tells us that we were once living in accord with the heritage that we received from our forefathers, and that heritage was a heritage of death. But now we have beheld, now we have received a heritage of life and life through Jesus Christ. And can I tell you that if we've received a heritage of life through Jesus Christ, then we need to be those who display it and those who communicate it. We need to communicate the gospel with our mouths and demonstrate the gospel with our lives. When they revile us, we don't revile. When they bring evil to us, we don't return in kind. Instead, we are a people so transformed, so transformed by the Holy Spirit and transfixed on the person of Jesus that we are a people who can do nothing else but bless. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, I'm so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which may be not a better person, but a forgiven person. Maybe not a person more in control, but a person controlled by your spirit. And so, God, I pray for an ever-increase of the surrender to your spirit. And pray for the lives of those who have yet to surrender themselves to you, that you would move in their hearts and in their lives to call them into peace. God, I pray for those who see us resist, engage with the gospel, They bring evil or they revile us and we return with love and the gospel following in the path and pursuit of Jesus. That you would bring your spirit in that moment to convict them of sin and lead them in the paths of righteousness. God, we pray that you would lead us and guide us in the application of the truth of your word and that we would be a people wholly surrendered to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.